The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. A roller coaster week for Wall Street set to continue as investors are pulled between earnings and a string of new hawkish comments from central bank officials. Bankrupt crypto exchange FTX looks to distance itself from its former CEO, as Sam Bankman-Fried tries to explain his side of the story via tweet. In London, the new government looking to officially put Trustonomics behind it, set to announce a massive package aimed at restoring investor confidence. Plus, wrapping up a wild week for retail after Target's fourth quarter shocker yesterday and looking ahead to Macy's and Gap stores today. And then later on, New details as Elon Musk says he's exploring the idea of leadership changes at Tesla and Twitter. It's Thursday, November 17, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I'm Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan today. Let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. equity futures, mostly lower, though marginally so, for Wall Street yesterday. We also saw the Nasdaq fall more than one and a half percent in yesterday's session. We're seeing some marginal losses implied at the opening bell this morning. Right now, the Dow is implied lower by 56 points. The S&P lower by roughly five points and just about flat for the Nasdaq. Now, checking the bond market, yields still still very much a focus here, given some of the inflation data that we saw over the course of the past few days. Right now, yields are ticking higher. The benchmark 10-year note yield just at around 3.727 percent. The two-year note yield about 4.365%. Now, in energy, oil prices are continuing a nearer-term trend to the downside. You can see there, West Texas Intermediate, U.S. benchmark crude prices, $85.16. That's off about one-half of 1%. One-quarter of 1% declines for world benchmark gauge Brent crude futures, which are currently sitting at just about $92.64, down about $0.22. In cryptocurrencies... Bitcoin, again, still feeling the pressure. We have seen it for the last couple of weeks now in the wake of the FTX bankruptcy. Right now, Bitcoin prices are lower by one quarter of one percent, $16,504 and change. And then Ethereum prices right now down about one and a half percent, $1,191 even. Now, around the world, it's mostly red arrows in Asia overnight. You can see there the Nikkei in Japan off about one third of one percent. The Shanghai Composite down about two tenths of one percent. But the real downside pressure in the Hang Seng in Hong Kong down well over a percent. Now, the trading day ahead in Europe is really just kind of getting going so far today. The CAC in France is off about one half of one percent. The FTSE 100 in the UK down about one half of one percent. And the German DAX seeing some fractional gains up about one quarter of one percent, but mostly red, as you can see on that continental map of Europe. Now, let's get to some of this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Silvana, good morning. Dom, good Thursday morning to you. Um, Amazon is offering voluntary buyouts to some employees as it looks for new ways to trim its headcount and cut costs. Now, according to internal company documents viewed by CNBC, the, quote, voluntary severance offers included a lump sum 
severance payment to equal to three months of pay plus one week of salary for every six months of tenure at the company. The notices were sent out over the past two days to divisions, including human resources and employee services, and followed the already massive 10,000 staff layoff plan already underway. Shares of China gaming giant NetEase sinking in overnight trading, this after it ended its near 14-year deal with U.S.-based Activision Blizzard to distribute games like World of Warcraft and Overwatch in China. Both companies saying a deal renewal agreement could not be reached. NetEase is the second largest gaming company in China behind Tencent in part due to its deal with Activision, which began back in 2008. Change could be afoot at Tesla and Twitter. According to testimony yesterday from Tesla board member James Murdoch, CEO Elon Musk has in the last few months identified someone as a potential successor at the EV maker, but falling short of naming exactly who. This, as Musk himself has said, he expects to reduce his time at Twitter and eventually find a new CEO to run the company, just not right now. And more fallout this morning over Taylor Swift's tour ticket fiasco. Activists and lawmakers are renewing calls to split Ticketmaster and Live Nation, which merged back in 2010, claiming the company is essentially a monopoly. Some are also calling for the Justice Department to get involved. Live Nation shares are down nearly 40 percent this year, Dom. All right, Savannah Hinao with those latest headlines. Thank you very much for those. To a developing story this morning and the U.K. government looking to officially put former Prime Minister Liz Truss and her failed fiscal policies in the rearview mirror today. Arabile Goumede joins us now live from London with the latest there. Arabile, this is all about the new budget that is going to replace the mini budget that we saw from Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss. How optimistic are Britons about what this is going to lead to? Well, they certainly aren't as optimistic from some of the words that we've certainly heard. I even got to speak to a Treasury spokesperson not so long ago, Dominique, and what the sentiment there was that today's budget is going to prove how Britons are paying for past mistakes or mistakes then uh, from the previous government, which really uh, is not beneficial for the growth of the UK economy. We are seeing CPI, of course, at 11.1%. Uh, you saw growth go down. It was a negative 0.2% figure for the third quarter, which means that we could start seeing a recession in the UK. The Bank of England's governor, Andrew Bailey, has spoken about how you could have uh, the longest recession on record. And if that is the case, then Jeremy Hunt's statement today is going to have to try and appease markets, which might be the first port of call, and then look to how exactly you can stabilize the debt hole that the government currently sits with. The Treasury spokesperson that I spoke to said that debt pile here sits at the, or rather the fiscal hole, sits at around 55 billion pounds. Right? That is a massive hole to try and fill, which is going to be done through spending cuts as well as tax hikes of around 22 uh, billion pounds then. That means an austerity budget is what we're expecting to hear from uh, the uh, Chancellor then, uh, Jeremy Hunt, who has only been in the job for just over a month. But we remember what happened when the last Chancellor was speaking just after a month in office. Arabile, austerity, you use that word, this idea of, of raising taxes and cutting spending to try to get your fiscal house in order. It's meant in many ways to bring confidence from investors back to the government, back to the finances, back to the economy of a particular country, in this case, the U.K. Is there uh, an idea that this new plan could bring back investor confidence to the U.K.? 
Well, that will be the first port of call by the sounds of it. It seems that the first thing that Jeremy Hunt will need to do, the finance minister, is to really appease markets. Of course, there was the turbulence that was felt in that uh, September 23rd statement by the previous Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, which roiled markets, forcing the Bank of England to intervene and, of course, shore up the bond markets, ensuring that pensions uh, weren't hurt dramatically. And he even said, the uh, governor of the Bank of England, that is Andrew Bailey, saying that there were moments away from collapse was the uh, pension funds in the UK. So clearly needing to step in. So the first port of call here for Jeremy Hunt, as well as Rishi Sunak, the new prime minister, is to ensure that the market feels a sense of calm and that things aren't going to escalate any further. But that sense of calm means that they forego growth, particularly in the long term, because they're first going to focus on trying to ensure that they're looking fiscally responsible and are able to cover up that debt pile and then, on the other hand, look to how they can help UK citizens. There's also the energy issue, which is still at play, and they're going to have to cover that up because the fiscal plan for covering the dead pile on energy ends next year in April. So what happens after that? But you're quite correct then, Dom. It's going to be about the markets first. All right. Arabile Goumede live in the United Kingdom with the latest there on the fiscal state of play. Now, back home here in the United States, big changes are coming to D.C. and the future of President Biden's economic agenda. NBC News projecting Republicans will take control of the House, albeit by a very slim margin. NBC's Bree Jackson joins us now with what's going to happen with this new House and what it could mean for the Biden administration. Bree. Good morning, Dom. Yeah, winning the House gives Republicans a powerful check on President Biden, with the White House likely to face a flurry of investigations. An 18th seat. Republicans have now secured a majority. Republicans cementing a takeover of the House of Representatives. It is official. One party Democrat rule in Washington is finished. We have fired Nancy Pelosi. Kevin McCarthy, the top Republican in the chamber, is expected to replace Speaker Nancy Pelosi, although he still has to win over some skeptics within his own party. Buckle up, because Kevin McCarthy or whoever else ultimately becomes Speaker will have a very difficult time wrangling this group together. There are divisions within the GOP after the predicted midterms red wave fizzled. Some of the senators and point the finger at, at Donald Trump, and I think that is convenient. Uh, for Senate Republicans to, to place the blame somewhere else. We need to talk about, not about somebody in particular, we need to talk about the American people in general. Mitch McConnell, who was re-elected as Senate Minority Leader, is focused on narrowing the gap in the upper chamber. Democrats retained control with 50 seats ahead of the December runoff election in Georgia. We're going to do everything we can to, uh, to, to get Herschel Walker elected. With a divided Congress next session, House Republicans, even with a slim majority, will have a powerful check on President Biden and are threatening congressional investigations ranging from his administration's handling of COVID-19 to immigrants at the southern border. And President Biden congratulated the top House Republican Kevin McCarthy, saying he's ready to work across the aisle to help working families. Dom? So, so Bree, uh, with this Republican uh, takeover of the House of Representatives, uh, maybe some folks are wondering out there what Nancy Pelosi has to say uh, about all of this. Uh, she's not, in essence, she's fired as the House Speaker, right, because she, she, she no longer controls the majority in the House. She is still a representative in, in, in Congress. 
So what exactly is Nancy Pelosi's reaction to what's just happened in the House? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not uh, it's a shift in leadership positions. But Nancy Pelosi is still uh, a representative in the House. And Pelosi says she plans to address her political future uh, later today, according to a tweet from her spokesperson. Uh, But she also said that uh, Democrats are going to help President Biden uh, move his agenda forward, even though that they even though that they no longer control the House. But uh, many are asking the question, will she stay or will she go? Will she retire after this? And so uh, we hope to find out more today when she um, addresses her colleagues. NBC's Bree Jackson live in Washington, D.C. with the latest there. Thank you very much. Back to the markets. Another top Fed official is adding a voice to those suggesting the central bank will likely slow the pace of rate hikes beginning in December. This is Fed Governor Christopher Waller saying he's open to the idea of raising rates by a half a percentage point, 50 basis points, but stresses inflation remains painfully high. The data of the past few weeks have made me more comfortable considering stepping down to a 50 basis point hike. But I won't be making a judgment about that until I see more data, including the next PCE inflation report and the next jobs report. So let's talk more about this now with Matt Orton, chief market strategist at Raymond James Investment Management. Uh, Matt, you heard the comments from Fed Governor Christopher Waller. They're hawkish, but they're not as hawkish as 75 basis points or three quarters of a percent rate hikes that we've seen for a pretty decent string right now. What exactly then do you make of this? Is this a softening of language or are we still focused on that so-called terminal rate or where the Fed ends up its campaign of rate hikes? Good morning, Dom. Great to see you. And there really wasn't a tremendous amount of new news there. I think after we got the CPI report last week, we all knew that 50 basis points was likely going to be what we saw. 75, I think, was essentially off the table. So we didn't really learn a tremendous amount there. If anything, I think it's a reminder that the market has just been so preoccupied on this pivot or this slowdown in rate hikes, but we've lost sight of the fact that the terminal rate itself I don't think has changed. We're still looking at five or five and a quarter percent. And in that in and of itself is going to be challenging for some of the higher duration parts of the market that rallied really hard off the bottom. So when I've been talking to clients, really the main message is don't chase the market higher. Let the market come to you. There's certain sectors that I think continue to look attractive that we've been leaning into this year, which includes healthcare, energy, and really overall maintaining what I like to call a core defensive bias. So leaning into higher quality. So higher free cash flow, ROE, stability, and earnings growth. Those are the types of companies that you still want to own going forward. I just don't think the playbook has changed. And a lot of the Fed speak just reemphasizes that. Okay, so Matt, what we're doing right now, I don't know if you can see it, but what we're showing viewers right now is a series of charts for the Dow, the S&P 500, and NASDAQ. Now, if you look at the Dow chart, we are not that far away from the highs that we saw over the course of the past year. It is a very different story when it comes to the S&P 500 and certainly the NASDAQ composite. So you mentioned this idea that you can let the market come to you, but which chart are you supposed to look at? Because right now, you could get a sense of FOMO, right? Fear of missing out if you look at the Dow chart. But the Nasdaq and S&P still say, hey, you know what? I didn't really miss out on that much. Things are still pretty bearish right now, but by the way things look. 
Right. And a lot of that, Dom, comes down to just how these indices are actually constructed. I think the NASDAQ overall, it's just too early to be moving into technology. There's there's obviously going to be very idiosyncratic opportunities that look attractive at current valuations and growth prospects. But the Dow, I think, just reemphasizes the fact that those tend to be higher quality companies that are outperforming in the current market. You do have more healthcare companies in there. You've got some aerospace and defense that has been working well. So And when you look at the totality of those charts, I think the main takeaway to me is that while the stock market itself, the indices are telling us one story, the market of stocks, the fact that there's increased breadth across the entire stock market and what's working, that's more of a positive, I think, longer term. So I think you can take away some optimism from that. But still, I think the main message is that the indices overall are going to remain challenged. And that's why you don't want to be chasing the market higher and the volatility we've seen over the past, you know, I'll call it weeks, really is just a reminder that there's no need to do that because the market will give you the opportunity if you're looking to redeploy some cash. All right. Matt Orton, Raymond James, thank you very much. We'll see you soon. When we come back on the show, a major reversal in more rail as more rail unions push back on a Biden broker deal to avoid a massive strike that could bring the U.S. economy to a screeching halt. The latest next, plus psychotic behavior, Bernie Madoff, and market manipulation. Those are just a few choice words from Binance CEO CZ when describing the fall of FTX and its former CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF. His full comments in the latest on the collapse when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. A market flash for you this morning on a company you don't likely know a lot about. It's called D-Local, and the chart there shows a massive fall. It's a Uruguay-based payment processing company. Those shares plunged 50% yesterday after Muddy Waters' Carson Block revealed that his hedge fund is shorting the stock, citing quote-unquote red flags he found in the most recent D-Local accounts, which were filed in 2020. Now, D-Local responding by the way, in a statement saying in part, the Muddy Waters report, quote, contains numerous inaccurate statements, groundless claims and speculation. Now, Carson Block unveiled this short idea at the Sone conference in London just yesterday. On the heels of those comments, the stock fell by about 10 to 15 percent. In the aftermath of his CNBC interview yesterday, the stock continued to fall, so we'll keep an eye on those D-local shares. Now, the clock is ticking once again on a possible nationwide rail strike that could bring the U.S. economy and a strained supply chain to a halt just in time for the key holiday shopping season. 
Now, rail operators, customers and logistics managers are eyeing two key dates in the days ahead. CNBC senior editor Lorianne LaRocco joins us now with the latest on the rails and what's going to happen. Lorianne. Good morning, Dom. Well, the first key date for investors is Monday, November 21st. That's when the two largest unions, the Engineers Union and the Smart TD Union, announced their vote on the tentative deal. If one of these two unions votes not to ratify, they could start striking December 9th, following a mandatory cooling-off period. But as of right now, even if these two groups vote to ratify the deal, we are still looking at a strike. Why? Because there are three unions that have already voted not to ratify the deal. As of December 5th, the BMWED, which represents the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees, and the BRS, the Signalman's Union, are set to strike. Meanwhile, the Boilermakers Union, which has also voted to not ratify the deal, has not given a start date for their strike. Based on the September prep timeline, railroads should start to strike preps around November 28th, the day the Senate is back from Thanksgiving. Now, here's where it gets tricky. If next week the larger unions vote not to ratify a deal, the BMWED has said it will postpone its strike to December 9th, which will align with them. But as of right now, the BRS is not changing its timeline and could still start its strike on December 5th. But if the BRS does decide to align with the larger union and the BMWED, that means the railroads don't have to begin strike preps until December 1st. Now, four days may not seem like a lot, but when you are slowing down rail trade, it matters to shippers. Now, UPS is the largest rail customer, and they tell me while they encourage an immediate resolution, they are flexing their integrated smart logistics network so they can plan to move railbound containers by other modes of transport. Dom? All right. So, so Lorianne, what kind of feedback then are you hearing from rail customers? I mean, you mentioned UPS as, as a very big user of the system. There, there are a lot of stakeholders here. What else are you hearing? Yeah, there are a lot, uh, Dom. The American Chemistry Council, which represents companies like 3M, Dow, DuPont, BP, ExxonMobil, and Eli Lilly, they tell me a rail strike could approximately impact $2.8 billion in chemicals that move each week. And the NRF, they're telling me a strike would potentially impact not only the holiday goods, it's going to impact spring merchandise that retailers have already started to bring in. All right. Lorianne LaRocco there with the latest on what's happening with the U.S. rail system. Uh, thank you very much. Still on deck for the show. Your big money movers and a massive move higher for one retail chain championed by third points Dan Loeb. That mystery chart revealed. We are back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Philip Mena. Here are your headlines. Same-sex marriage protections are closer to becoming law after the Respect for Marriage Act cleared a key Senate hurdle Wednesday in a 62 to 37 vote. Twelve Republicans voted with Democrats to advance the bill, signaling it has the 10 Republican votes needed to ultimately pass the legislation. 12 million Americans are under a weather alert. Lake effect snow is gearing up to wreak havoc across the Great Lakes region. Warnings have been issued for parts of western New York. Buffalo could get buried in up to four feet of snow. For the first time since 1968, both Cy Young winners captured the awards unanimously. Houston Astros ace Justin Verlander won his third AL award. He's the first pitcher, though, to receive the honor after not pitching the season before. And Miami's Sandy Alcantara took home the NL Cy Young honors. He's the first Marlin to win the award. And his six complete games were more than any other team in baseball this season. Worldwide Exchange is back right after this. Investors looking to put Target's terrible day behind them with a new batch of retail results set to hit the tape in less than an hour. We will break down what's at stake. I think only a psychopath can write that tweet. (laughs) Strong words from the CEO of Binance as he looks to distance his firm from the collapse of FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. His full comments beyond just the psychopath ones ahead and bracing for a flurry of Fed speeches as Wall Street looks for any signs of easing from the central bank. It's Thursday, November 17th, 2022. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan today. It's right around 5.31 a.m. Eastern time here on the East Coast. And here's how stock futures are looking. Marginal losses at the opening bell implied the Dow down by about 35 points. The S&P off by about two points and the Nasdaq higher by just around seven. So mixed picture. If you take a look at overall what's going on, the markets are still trying to recover from yesterday's losses. Now to a developing story and the latest around the collapse of FTX. The now bankrupt crypto exchange is looking to distance itself from its former CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, saying he has no affiliation with the firm and does not speak on its behalf. This after Bankman-Fried tries to explain his side of the story, one tweet at a time, saying he and FTX became, quote, overconfident and careless, his words in a tweet. CNBC's Dan Murphy joins us now with the new comments from another major player in the space who's also been making waves in recent days. Dan, this is a big name. Indeed, Dom. It's the Binance CEO, and he has likened this to a Madoff moment for the crypto space. He certainly did not mix his words on stage here in Abu Dhabi today, saying the only way to restore trust and credibility in this sector is for investigators and for regulators to look at the records to understand exactly what happened behind closed doors at FTX. And of course, he also took a swipe at his fallen rival, Sam Bankman-Fried, calling him a psychopath for some of his tweets and saying he wish he had have known earlier about the state of FTX. Listen. But when he tweets about a sparring, sparring partner and when his house is burning and all this, like when all this things are happening, he should be, he, he's, he's losing focus. So um, uh, I only, like, I didn't know this problem existed in FTX before. Otherwise, we would have sold the FTT tokens a long time ago. 
The crypto industry has, of course, been upended by this collapse, and investors are really questioning now if they can trust any of the major players left. As for what's next for Bankman-Fried, well, CZ said this should be handled by the authorities. I do know there have been lies uh, to uh, his employees, to his VC investors, to regulators, uh, to his users, um, and, uh, and there have been misappropriation of users' funds. Um, I think all of those things happen. Um, so in my definition, that's, that's fraud. Mm. Uh, uh, but whether, how, 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 how will he be handled as a criminal, we'll leave that to the law, law enforcement agencies. And in the last 24 hours, Binance has tried to demonstrate that it has enough capital on hand to withstore to, uh, to, to withstand a bank run. And CZ said on stage that he does indeed have enough in reserve to survive a potential liquidity crisis. He has also just released a statement in the last few minutes saying he is committed to Binance's clients. But of course, this comes after criticism this week from the famed economist Noriel Rabini, who was also speaking to me on stage here in Abu Dhabi. He said, Binance is a walking time bomb. Of course, that's an allegation that CZ also strongly denied on stage today, Dom. Dan, you can't help but, but understand why folks are a little bit skeptical about the entire industry right now, given what's happened with FTX, a very high-profile part of this business. I, I wonder, from CZ's standpoint, I, he's spoken in the past about maybe even needing regulation to, to, to cement legitimacy in cryptocurrencies. Just how much does this kind of make the case that there needs to be not just a national, but maybe even a global regulatory framework for cryptocurrency? Well, he would certainly be a proponent of it. And when I asked about the future prospects for regulation in this space, he said he would like to see these trading houses and some of these businesses being overseen. But of course, for investors, it all comes back to this ultimate question of when you look at these trading houses, are there liabilities covered by assets in storage? Can they demonstrate proof of reserves? Uh, who does their auditing and accounts? Where are they domiciled? And ultimately, who has the actual capacity to regulate something that so few people actually understand? So many, many questions remain to be answered, unfolding from the collapse of FTX, Dom. And you really do get the sense that this story has much further to run. All right. Dan Murphy with the latest there from Chengpeng Zhao. Uh, thanks very much for those comments. We're going to hear, by the way, much more from CZ later on this morning when he joins Squawk Box at the 7 a.m. Eastern Time Hour. A must-watch interview there. Maybe he'll tell us a little bit more about those psychopath comments he made during those Abu Dhabi Milken Institute stage uh, remarks. So we'll keep an eye on that. To retail now on what's been a wild week for the sector, Names like Walmart and Home Depot topping estimates and raising fourth quarter guidance despite inflationary pressures and bloated inventories. But it was Target bucking the trend, warning of a soft holiday quarter as its core customers pull back on spending. The stock taking a tumble yesterday down more than 10 percent just this week alone. This is all coming as investors await results from even more companies today. We've got Macy's, Gap and Kohl's, just to name a few, as you can see there in the calendar. Joining me now is Thomas, lead uh, at the Kearney, uh, I'm sorry, at the Carney Consumer Institute. Katie Thomas, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Katie, I wonder, we wonder if the state of play for the consumer right now is one where they are truly weak, or is this one where retailers are working through their own execution issues 
in that the consumer is only a smaller part of that bigger macro story? Yeah, I think you're spot on there, Dominic, where some of the inventory challenges we've seen retailers face really, you know, there's nothing the consumer can do about that. It's not their problem to buy things when their behavior has already changed. What you're really seeing from the consumer side is that, you know, they're really focusing on that perception of good value and where they can get competitive prices. When we talk to consumers about the impact of inflation, they're really feeling it in food, groceries and the day to day and gas. So that's where you see benefits of companies like Walmart, because, you know, 50 over 50 percent of their revenue comes from their grocery sector, whereas other discretionary spend, particularly in the third quarter, did take a bit of a hit. Um, but holiday season may look a little bit differently. Katie, can, can you take us through uh, just in, in your expert opinion what the difference in story is between Target and Walmart We've heard a lot of people try to explain it, but I, I wonder, th- this is very much a, a company-specific issue with regard to Target and then one with Walmart as well. Yeah, you know, that's where Walmart really did benefit just from bringing folks in the door. We heard it with their last earnings release as well, where they were bringing in higher income consumers. And you're seeing it in discount stores as well, dollar stores, where high income consumers are really beginning to cross shop and making sure on those day-to-day essentials that they are getting the absolute best price that they can. So then they can evaluate where to spend elsewhere. When you think of a store that's more of a treasure hunt, that's more of a, hey, I went in for a few items and I ended up spending way more. um, That can be a little bit more concerning from the consumer's point of view as they're really trying to weigh their options and where they can get the best bang for their buck truly. As we approach Thanksgiving next week, we, we can't help but think about Black Friday We can't help but think about Cyber Monday. As a consumer, Katie, this is just anecdotal with my experience, but many of the places that I would tend to shop have already put out Black Friday promotions about two to three weeks ago. I got to tell you, I'll confess, probably 80% of my Christmas shopping is now done for the season, and it's not even Black Friday. How is that going to skew the numbers, if at all, this time around, given the fact that supply chain issues have made some consumers like me just take what they can get when they can get it. Yeah, there's definitely a longer holiday season happening. And that's why you even saw some of the lift in the October retail numbers is you saw a lot of big retailers start those sales in October. Now, the interesting part there was consumers told us they were still largely shopping for themselves then, at least in October. Um, They weren't necessarily really leaning into holiday sales yet. I agree with you in, you know, in my own store walk, store visits, uh, you know, pretty much all Black Friday sales are on now. So we will see a bit of a pull forward. The holiday is an interesting time, though. Consumers historically do tend to still want to spend in the holiday. NRF's holiday estimates are still strong. So even though there's concern and inflation in the back of their mind, uh, they tend to really still want to lean into gifts and home decor. All right. And Katie, before we let you go, let's put some news you can use out there. Typically, we do start to see more discounting happening as we get closer towards the middle of December and beyond. Can we expect that same thing this time around, given inventory statuses across the industry? 
Yeah, absolutely. And heavier discounting this year. Again, last year, the supply chain issues that we faced actually allowed retailers to not discount as much as they had in years past. Now we're seeing the reverse. And in some ways, again, like we talked about at first, it's it's on things that consumers aren't necessarily looking for. So it really just depends on how particular people are going to be about the products that they want. But we do anticipate these discounts to persist through December and really allow consumers a lot of options to get great deals. All right. So a possible promotional environment still coming up. Katie Thomas at Carney, thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Thank you. All right. Coming up on the show this morning's RBI and that ongoing fraud that could make FTX, Enron and MF Global look like small potatoes. But first, as we head out to break, some of your big money movers, Bath and Body Works is soaring 23 percent upside pre-market after the retailer reported better than expected third quarter results and hiked its profit guidance for the year. The company says it remains disciplined in cost and inventory management. Speaking of, heading into the holidays, NVIDIA's third quarter revenues beating forecasts as strong demand for data center chips offset a 50% decline in sales from its video gaming business. The company says a flood of products are being unloaded by people who use them in crypto mining activities, which may be denting demand for its products. NVIDIA is projecting fourth quarter sales of $6 billion. That's roughly in line with estimates. Those NVIDIA shares up 2.5% pre-market. And Sonos putting a fourth quarter, posting a fourth quarter loss, but revenues did be forecast. The speaker maker says trends in the business have recently stabilized, and it's encouraged heading into this quarter and the holiday shopping period. Those shares for Sonos up 2.25% pre-market. Worldwide Exchange is back after this. Welcome back. Now it's time for this month's Sectornomics segment. Our featured sector for November is healthcare, which has been the second heaviest weighting of any S&P 500 sector behind just technology. And while it's still lower on the year-to-date basis, it has handily outperformed the broader index in terms of now specific names that have done well. Two of the top performers are Cardinal Health and McKesson, both of which are big players in healthcare services, pharmaceuticals, and medical product manufacturing. Elsewhere in the industry, biopharma giant Vertex Pharmaceuticals, also among some of the big leaders in the sector. All three of those names, by the way, are less than 10 percent from highs they notched just earlier this month. So some real momentum there as well. But it's not been all smooth sailing. Invisalign maker Align Technology is on pace for its worst year on record amid a sharp decline in sales over the past year. Two companies involved in drug delivery and packaging, Catalent and West Pharmaceuticals, are also among some of the worst performers in the industry. So a very mixed picture within the healthcare business overall, but the sector is still a relative bright spot in the S&P 500 so far this year. Time now for something random but interesting, RBI. For that, we send it out to Brian Sullivan. Well, your morning RBI is back, and today, though, it is on a more serious topic, and that is fraud. But this fraud has nothing to do with FTX or Sam Bankman-Fried. It has to do with your tax dollars. The New York State Comptroller's Office just put out a report on likely fraud or improper payments the state made over the past two years. And if you're not sitting down, you should. The numbers are staggering. This report finds that during the pandemic, the state of New York may have paid out more than $2 billion worth of improper or fraudulent payments. In 2020, fraudulent payments surged an insane 530%. Now, as bad as that is, you might be able to kind of understand a little, given all the chaos and the lockdowns and whatever, 
But it didn't get much better even last year or early this year. Bad payments rose an estimated 330 percent again in 2021, coming into early this year. Add it all up. It is over $2 billion sent out either erroneously or more likely to people committing fraud on the state and taxpayers. All right. How could this happen? Well, no one seems to know. Literally, in fact, in the report, they note that state officials had no ability to actually explain how it all happened. Listen to this directly from the report. They note that state Labor Department officials, quote, seemed unfamiliar with certain areas of audit, such as basic security controls, and were not able to readily produce related records and documentation, something that should have been easily retrievable, or they failed to provide it altogether. End quote. Truly stunning revelations. And remember, it's just one state, New York. How bad is it nationally if you added up all the states? Here's the bottom line. Along with the reported hundreds of billions in alleged PPP loan fraud or improper payments, a combined total fraud or improper payments sent out over the past two years from states and Washington, D.C., could easily be a few hundred billion or even a half a trillion dollars. Your tax dollars, this is your money, and it's likely to ultimately increase taxes or the cost of unemployment insurance on everyone and every business. All in, it actually makes FTX or even Enron look like small potatoes. Random, but sad. Staggering numbers for sure. Brian Sullivan, thank you very much for that RBI. Now still on deck for the show, bracing for a flurry of Fed speak and even more retail results, we sift through the noise with Crossmark's Victoria Fernandez. She's coming up next. And if you haven't already done so, please follow our podcast on Worldwide Exchange. If you missed this show, check us out on Apple or Spotify or your podcast app of choice, Worldwide Exchange in audio format. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get a check on what to watch for the day ahead as we look at futures right now with the Dow Jones now taking a leg lower, implied lower by about 125 points at the opening bell. The S&P down by 16 points. And the Nasdaq now turning negative as well, implied lower by 43. Among some of the laggards in that Dow Jones pre-market trade right now, you've got some big industrial names like Caterpillar. Also, Microsoft is down three quarters of 1%. Apple's down half a percent pre-market. Merck is down half a percent. And Coca-Cola is a bright spot, up about one-third of 1%. Let's get a check on what to watch for in the day ahead. Weekly jobless claims, they're out at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time, as are October housing starts and the November Philly Fed survey. Alibaba reports third quarter results before the opening bell, along with Macy's, BJ's, Kohl's, and Gap is out after the close. So the retail bonanza continues. By the way, more than a half dozen Fed officials are speaking today. We'll hear from Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic, St. Louis Fed Chief James Bullard, Fed Governor Michelle Bowman, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester, Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari, and Fed Governor Philip Jefferson all this morning. And then this evening, Fed Chair Jay Powell gives a toast to Chicago Fed President Charles Evans, who is retiring early next year. That's a lot of Fed speak. So let's talk more about the markets and what it can all mean. By the way, the markets are coming off their second negative session in the past three. Let's bring in Victoria Fernandez, chief market strategist at Crossmark Global Investments. Victoria, I reeled off a list of Fed speakers and earnings reports. What exactly is the most important thing for you in the market right now? 
Yeah, I think you could have a pretty busy day, Dom, if you do nothing but just listen to Fed speak. But I think you're going to hear the same story over and over. So what are we looking at right now? Well, the Fed is already telling you that, yes, CPI was a positive um, number for them, that it's telling you inflation has probably peaked. Um, You look at Longer term inflation expectations are being well anchored. We look at import prices that are declining. M2 money supply is coming down. Supply chains are doing better. All of these things tell us that inflation has probably peaked on the whole. I think there's elements um, within the reports that will continue to be higher, especially when you look at food services. But I think what we're going to hear from the Fed is that, yes, things are looking better, but we are nowhere near where we want to be. We are nowhere near that 2% Fed target. So they're going to continue to do the story that we're going to hike rates, maybe at a less pace, which makes sense. 50 basis points in December. That's what Fed fund futures are telling us, but they're not done hiking. And so you combine that with the earnings reports that we're getting that say, look, for the most part, the consumer is still pretty strong, but we expect earnings to continue to come down over the next couple quarters. So you really have a mixed bag. You've got to weigh the hard data against what you're hearing from the Fed. And for us, that means you're going to have continued volatility in this market. So continued volatility also implies then that maybe we haven't hit bottom yet and that there is still an economic story that has to play out before markets can hit that bottom. You mentioned the peaking idea of inflation. Let's assume that that's the case. Nobody knows for sure yet. What does that say about recessionary prospects in the coming year? Yeah, look, I, I hate to be the, you know, the party pooper here, but I do think we're probably going to see a recession around middle of next year. I would expect it's going to be more along that short and shallow um, recession than any kind of heavy recession that we're going to get. Because like I mentioned, I think the Fed is not done. It's the terminal rate that's most important. And if we think that terminal rate is still going to be around 5%, we still have a little bit of ways to go here. And the lag effects usually start around, what, nine months after the first rate hike? That means they're just now starting to work their way through the economy. So I think we'll probably see that continue to drag into next year, continue to see maybe one more rate hike next year, possibly two at the 25 basis point level, which means we have a small recession. And the consumer, I think, is going to be what helps keep that a shallow recession. Victoria, tech and consumer discretionary are still big underperformers right now. Are there opportunities there? Are you sticking with some of the more cyclical industrial value oriented sectors that are perhaps outperforming that tech trade? Yeah, so Dom, you know, we had been more defensive so far this year. We were adding a little bit of cyclicality. Um, but what the main thing we're doing is trimming some of the names that we actually like on these updates, trimming MasterCard and Valero and adding, you talked about Cardinal Health. We've added a little bit of Cardinal Health, some wealth manage, uh, waste management in there as well. But I think you want to have a little cyclical exposure because, as we said, the market's going to be volatile and you want to be able to participate in some of these kind of what we would consider bear market rallies going on, but you still need to have that defensive posture. I think most importantly, take a step back and look at what allocations make sense. Global equity with dividends, covered call strategies, equity market neutral strategies with long and short positions. These are the areas you need to look at in order to take advantage of a volatile market. All right. Victoria Fernandez across Mark. Thank you very much. Great to get your thoughts. We'll see you soon. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Futures right now taking a leg lower. The Dow is implied lower by roughly 12530 points. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. We'll see you tomorrow.
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 